0: The story is set in ancient Persia. It's set during the reign of King Xerxes, a historical uh, king, the king who actually features the Persian, Medo Persian king who features in the film 300. So we're really set in a historical ancient world, a genuine. Period of time. Up to now, where we've got to is we've found that various characters, like every good story, various characters have been introduced to us, and the plot has started to unfold. Two opening characters, the king and the queen, have a fallout, which results in one queen disappearing and a new queen appearing. However, the queen that does appear is um, one of God's people in the sense that she is a Jew who originally would have ended up uh, her heritage, family of heritage, would have found her in that place because because of exile. Uh, but we're talking some time after and she's stayed there. She's an orphan girl, Esther, who's ended up uh, being taken, uh, ripped from her home, ending up in the king's harem and ending up after that as the one who the king chooses to be his new queen and, and his wife. Uh, during that whole period of time, the, the other character who is introduced is her older cousin who's been looking after her since her parents' death, which is Mordecai. Mordecai um, is um, a God fearing. Jew living in the city of Susa. That's what comes across. That's, if you like, the, underplay, the underpinning story. Here we have people who are living in, a, if you like, an alien country, but they are seeking to try to work out how to live faithfully to God, even though they find themselves in that place. That's why I think this book is so relevant to us today. We're not living in ancient Susa, of course not but we are living in a world which is, uh, is alien to the ideas of God, and probably more so than for centuries in our country. Some have argued that we are in a situation which is more alien than we have ever experienced since the Christian faith first came into this country. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I think it's fair to say that we are in a place which is very, very different to the way it has been down through the past centuries. The idea of the Christian faith is generally rejected. And we're having to work out, therefore, how should we live? Uh, And we really, as we come to this particular chapter, chapter 4, we find that we we have the title for the story uh, for such a time as this actually appears in this chapter. It's, if you like, a fulcrum statement in the whole of the book. And we'll see why it's so important in a few minutes' time. Mordecai in seeking to be faithful to the God who he worships, has refused to bow down to Haman, who the king has honored. Uh, In the ancient world, obviously the king is the supreme dictator, of the not just the country, but the empire. And he has elevated his friend, Haman, to a point of supremacy, second in line to the king's throne, to a point where, that, uh, where Haman demands that people bow down and worship him. Mordecai sits in a stream of biblical heritage. He sits with Daniel. He sits with Daniel's followers, in the same place where they have said, okay, we are having to work out how to live in this world which is antagonistic to the God who we worship, but you are now demanding that we cross a line which is beyond where where I feel we can cross. And so Mordecai has made a stand on this particular issue. Interestingly, even though he has previously said to Esther... Uh, who's gone into uh, the palace, he's previously said to her, don't reveal the fact that you're a Jew. Now, isn't that interesting? He said, don't do that, and then he's made a point of principle and said, I'm not going to step out of line and worship you instead of worshiping my God. And so, trouble has erupted. We find here, as we come into this chapter, that uh, following Haman's um, flattery of the king... Uh, an, uh, uh, an edict has been written that every single Jew in the whole of the empire is going to be killed on a certain day, months away from this particular point. Mordecai behaves in a way where we see genuine grief expressed at the beginning of this chapter. I think for a start that's really interesting for us to see. We tend to live, I think, in a society which struggles with the idea of genuine grief. Very often we hide it. Uh, We hide where we really are, how we are really feeling. Um, What we see here is quite the opposite. We see Mordecai who dresses in sackcloth, if you like, a Hessian clothing rather than um, normal clothing. And he also, like others, is wailing and mourning and uh, at times covering himself in ashes. Now, that sounds just totally extreme, doesn't it? Sounds really extreme. One of the important things is to understand that Mordecai is not acting bizarrely. ...in that particular context. It's well recognized from archaeological evidence... ...that the practice of wearing sackcloth... ...and covering yourself in ashes... ...was not a practice which was unique to the Jews even. It was a pattern which was common in the ancient world. It was a way of expressing... ...it was a way of making a public statement... ...this is where I am. I am filled with grief. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. Because Mordecai is associating himself here, he, in verse 1 we see, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. He's not afraid to associate himself with the tragedy that has unfolded. And we see that that association is not just Mordecai but it's a lot of others as well. Right across the empire in many other cities there is this massive outpouring of grief. Now as we read this it might seem strange to us that there is such a public outpouring. Isn't it interesting though, here's just my observation, of um, where we are we might have an unwillingness to publicly outpour our grief but I think there is uh, a place where there's a lot of public outpouring of grief uh, but hidden behind a veil uh, the veil of social media Uh, so here we are in our interesting culture where we still are looking I think probably because we suppress so much we are still looking for a desire and an opportunity to express our inner feelings, to be able to communicate where we really are, that we are absolutely devastated and shattered by whatever is going on. Now, the interesting thing is that we see Mordecai making this statement. We might live in a culture where... To each other face to face, we might use those. How are you? Everything okay? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks. Great. Yeah, not bad. Or, yeah, it's yeah, okay, I'm doing all right. And underneath, we feel like we should be wearing sackcloth and covering ourselves in ashes. There are very few opportunities where we have the true uh, freedom and liberty to be able to do that. However, it can be so helpful. Because as we see here, that very step, that very process of being open with how we really are opens the door to future steps as this story unfolds. I think particularly the New Testament encourages us uh, to be with each other in our challenges, with each other in our grief. Not to be, if you like, uh, living in isolation, but rather to be living in a, a, that family community where we begin to understand the outpouring of where we really are can be so helpful because it opens the door. And here we see Mordecai, he, he just goes up to the king's gate. But now here we see another situation which is real, a really interesting contrast. There can be sackcloth and ashes and wailing and grief out there. But what we read uh, in verse 2 is that he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter into it. I think that is a tremendously powerful picture of how we would love to live today. We want to hide from realities. If you like, the the king's palace, this, this dividing line, this point where Mordecai got to outside the king's gate, where he could wear sackcloth and ashes... Out here, but he couldn't wear it in there. In other words, the king's the king's kind of community, the palace area, was not a place where that kind of grief was allowed. The king wanted to isolate himself. He wanted to hide himself away from all of the issues out there. That is a very, very common uh, statement that is made by many. with the opportunity to try to hide away. Uh, Money gives you the opportunity to do that. We would see in many of the kind of colonial, historical colonial places, where we would see that kind of isolated context. We see it in China as well, the imperial city. For all of the idea in in history that it was, for all of the intrigue that we now know went on behind those walls, the reality was that part of the purpose of the walls was to separate The idea of the the common tragedy and heartbreak from the isolated purity of the inner sanctum. Oh boy, do we want to live like that at times? Do we want to live and hope and pretend that it only happens out there? You know, one of the challenges that I think that that we see so often is that we live wanting for the challenge to be only out there, wanting for the difficulty to be out there, somebody else's problem. And it never gives us the opportunity by hiding away from it to experience that reality, pretending that it doesn't happen, that when it eventually and inevitably does happen, to us we are ill-equipped to cope we are ill-equipped to deal with it if you like Xerxes has got this idea he's portraying an idea which is so common I want to control the world I want to make sure that the world doesn't affect my stability my comfort my my well-being and the reality is we can't control the world can we We can't keep the grief outside. At some point it is going to break into our existence. And and if you like, the expression of Xerxes is trying to say, don't allow that difficulty to break in here. I'll keep it out there. But what when it does? What when it does? Because that is exactly what happens. That difficulty does break in. I think we see this um, in our own situations, don't we? We very often we hide, we, 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 we desire that it's not going to affect us. But can I encourage you? So many occasions where we realise there is a moment in time where we realise we cannot stem the tide, we cannot keep the door shut, and it is that at that moment that we realize we cannot control the world. And it is at that moment that we realize I need a greater power, I need a greater authority from outside of this world to secure me, to protect me, to be my foundation, to be my guardian, to be my protector. That is one of the things that uh, we see Mordecai and Esther have got in place if you like, that's the contrast. They've got this idea, whereas the idea of the Persian court is that they'll protect for themselves. So here we see a blissful isolation. When Esther's eunuch eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. That's another little little indication of the kind of isolation. She didn't even know about the edict that had been written. All of those bad things happen out there. So she sent clothes uh, for Mordecai to to dress in, but he wouldn't accept them. She's assuming. I mean, it's, it's a lovely sort of indication of her care and concern for her older cousin, isn't it? She hears that Mordecai is in sackcloth. And her assumption is that something has gone on out there and he is just broken and devastated. What can I do to help him? I will send him some material good and encourage him. But that wasn't enough. Because what was about to happen was that the reality of out there is now going to break in to the queen herself. She sends a message out. And she encourages Mordecai to eat. Um, sorry, to take the clothes. But he refuses. He would not accept them. So she sends out Hathak. Hathak actually means good. It's a great name, isn't it? Whether, um, whether his name is just described as that. You know, we call him Hathak because he was good. But Hathak means good. And what a trusted man. Here's a Persian uh, in the court... And Esther turns to him and says, I can't go out there. He can't come in here. I I trust you. Go out and find out what is wrong with Mordecai. He goes out. And Mordecai told him everything. The whole story. This is what's going on. All of the Jews are going to be killed in a number of months' time because of Haman's edict which the king, has he, as far as, he, as, far as um, Mordecai knows, it's got the king's signature ring imprinted in it. Do you remember that Haman was given the ring by the king? Just go and do what you want. It's got the, sink, the king's impression. Here's the copy of the text. Haman has done this. He's persuaded. He knows exactly how much money has been promised to, uh, to the king. And he even gives her a copy on a tablet, on a clay tablet of the edict. You take, you take this as well. Go and present all of this. And let me, I want you to persuade Esther to go into the king. To go in and to plead for us, Hathak went back, reported to Esther what Mordecai said. When she instructed to say to Mordecai, when she then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has put one or law. That they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to to them and spares their life. And I haven't been asked to go into the king for 30 days. There is a real problem in relationship, isn't there, in that royal court. Here's the situation. The king is in blissful isolation. Nobody can touch me. So here's the picture that is being painted. Number one... Nobody can come in through the gate in sackcloth and ashes. But nobody can even approach me with anything unless I extend the royal scepter. And if I don't extend the royal scepter, they are dead. And even the queen, even the king's wife falls under that law. And she hasn't been asked to see the king for 30 days. This is no longer Esther. Listen to what's happening. Go and have a chat with your husband, will you? It's not like that, is it? Just put yourself in her shoes for a moment. She is now being asked to literally... To literally go on a life and death mission. Her life is at stake. I'm sure that that is why this is portrayed in the way that it does. So that we understand what Esther is facing at this moment in time. This is a life and death issue. She may well die. Because... Of what Mordecai is asking her to do. And what's more I guess Mordecai if he didn't know before. He certainly knows when Hathak goes back with Esther's message. Maybe Mordecai isn't totally aware of what the difficulty is. But the message comes back from Esther. Here's the reality. My life is on the line because of this. I haven't seen the king for 30 days. If I go in and he doesn't extend the royal scepter, I am dead. Now think about it, Mordecai. Is that what you want? You have already made it really clear up to this point in time how absolutely precious Esther is to you. You've been outside the royal court listening to how things are going on. You've been protecting her. You've been caring for her. You've looked after her as an orphan child. And now you are putting her in the position of a life and death mission. And so half that goes back and speaks to Mordecai and conveys that message. Verse twelve says this: When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer: "Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family's fa- father's family will perish. And who knows?" but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai, what are you going to do? You, put yourself in Mordecai's shoes for a minute. You've already caused this, you might feel, because you have made the decision. It would seem Of all of the Jews in Susa, you have made the decision not to bow down to Haman. All of this has resulted from the fact that you have made that decision. And now you are facing another decision where Esther is saying to you, this has got really personal now. Esther is saying to you, I might die because you're asking me to do this. We must understand that the Christian faith, the idea of following the God who created the world, is not a, a decision of happy frivolity. There are times when it is absolutely critical, the issues that we face. There are times when we are making decisions which are absolutely critical in their nature. We might never, God willing, we might never face a decision like this. We might never face a decision where of saying, right, do I put all of my friends' lives at stake by deciding to do this thing? Do I put My young cousins, my adopted daughter's life at stake by deciding to do this. There are moments in time, however, and this is one of those moments in time where the decision of being a follower of Jesus, a believer in God, is so critical that it is not about comfort. It is not about the best decision for the outcome that I see in human terms to be the best. There are times when being a believer in Jesus Christ has to be a decision of principle. A decision where we will say, it does not look good. It looks like the outcome is going to be catastrophic. But that is what I am called to do. In other words, what Mordecai is saying is, at this moment in time, I am living as though I am a citizen of Jerusalem, even though I am actually in Susa. I am living as though I am under that law, even though I am having to live under this law. I do not know what the future is in this country for being a follower of Jesus. I don't know. But it might be, it might be at some point in this country that we might be faced with crisis decisions. We might be. And I don't think any of us have got any ability whatsoever to face those crisis decisions and to remain faithful unless God is working in us. And that's exactly what we see at this moment in time. We see God working in Mordecai. We see God empowering Mordecai at this moment in time to say there is something more important than personal comfort. There is something even more important than the life of your adopted daughter that is a remarkable statement to make look at the way he describes it firstly he says now is the time he doesn't say look aster look at where you are you're actually now married to the man who signed this edict or under whose name this edict has been made you've got great opportunity But he does say, he does say, look at where you are. It might be, it might be that you are where you are because of this moment in time. Do you see that? He's not saying it's it's absolute, he's saying it might be. He's saying, do you realize, Esther, that all of the things that have gone before, are in our hands that are bigger than our hands. They are not just chance. They are the hands of God working through our lives. And it might be that all of the things that have happened to this point in time have brought you to this moment. You are facing this decision right now. Maybe you're facing this decision because God has put you there for this moment. Now that is such a wildly different way of thinking about it isn't it? It's a wildly different way of thinking about the challenging issues. It shows a greater confidence. It shows a greater belief in the God who Mordecai is standing for. He's saying, I see something bigger going on. I believe that something bigger is going on. When you're facing the challenge, when I'm facing the challenge, one of the great confidences that we have is just that, that I am not here in this decision, by accident. It could be somebody else who's facing this decision, but the reality is that I am. I'm facing it. And it might be that I am facing this decision because I happen to be, at this moment in time, God's person in this place. That's the idea that Mordecai is is presenting. What an encouragement. What a great encouragement for us to be able to view. And it's like, it's one of those moments where all of the ideas that have gone through the previous three chapters all converge. All of the different threads of the story kind of find their moments. Esther, you are here. You're here. It might be that you are there. It might be that Vashti uh, denied the king. It might be that all of those, it might be that you were taken, stripped from our family, and taken into the harem. All of those things that are go, have gone on because of this moment. This is your moment. Your moment in time, Esther. This is what you are called to do. I said earlier that it's very unlikely that we're going to face these kind of decisions. But. I reckon that most of us have a few big moments in life. Most of us have a few moments in life, critical moments in life, where we make those decisions, where we make that decision which can change everything. It might not be world-changing, but it might be world-changing as well. We need to understand that those small decisions, which might be huge for us, but we think that in the scheme of things, they're just so insignificant. They might not be that insignificant. And that's one of the ideas that we see in this story, in the way that it unfolds, that the little things become part of such a huge plan that God is delivering his people. A drunken party is part of the progress that brings Esther into the royal court. Something that seems so alien. Something that seems so distant. The rebellion of uh, Vashti and the king towards each other. The broken relationships somehow in a greater, wonderful, beyond our understanding way. God is working it through to put you and and me in moments like this. Tolkien had had just this idea in his mind when he wrote Lord of the Rings. Um, So many ideas of this this perspective of uh, a greater good, power of good, working out against the powers of evil in this world that, that he sees unfolding around him. He's writing uh, around the time of the, uh, of the uh, rise of Nazism and all the rest of it. Uh, and there's this little moment where, if you know the story, Frodo has been given the ring to destroy, to, to if you like, to uh, free uh, the people from the oppression of the evil one. And Frodo says this I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. (laughs) I reckon Esther could have said that, don't you? I wish none of this had happened. Gandalf says this So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. I think that is amazingly powerful. Esther, you, it's not your decision that you are where you are. But you are where you are. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, beside the will of evil. <laughs> Christian. Do we understand that there are greater forces at work in this world beyond the will of evil? Because sometimes we talk as though evil is the champion and is winning left, right and center. And we need to remind what God says that Jesus in the cross has defeated sin and evil. That the victory has been won. We need to remember that there is good at work. When we look around and we see what is going on, we need to be reminded that the victory has been secured. And these are just the death throes of the defeated enemy. We need to remember that. But there is more at stake. Look at the tremendous statement of faith that Mordecai says. Verse 14, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. What? The lot has been cast, the date has been set, and yet Mordecai is absolutely convinced That God's people will be saved. Deliverance will come from somewhere else, Esther. It will. But maybe it's for you to deliver us. But deliverance will come. Why? Why was Mordecai so confident of that? Because you and I are at stake. You see, what Mordecai had understood was the security of God's people was not just about that generation at that moment in time. But rather he understood that God had promised that through his people there would be a saviour, a messiah, a promised messiah. And Mordecai understood that. So in the face of Haman's threat... Mordecai did not believe fundamentally that it would succeed he believed he was confident that God would save his people because he believed that God was going to send a savior through his people Mordecai knew that. He believed it. He was confident with it. But that belief did not stop him from encouraging Esther to do the right thing at the moment. He was not fatalistic about it. He said, do the right thing, but I do believe that God is going to save his people. Why? Because Jesus is at stake. Jesus is at stake here. If all of God's people had been wiped out by Haman... Jesus would never have been born. <laughs> but Mordecai didn't know about Jesus, but he knew that God had promised a Messiah. And he knew that that was going to work out. And that's why we have a really ridiculous little sentence in the middle of this book where Mordecai says, but I know that deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. It is the most st- stupid thing to say unless there is something way bigger going on Mordecai had absolutely no right whatsoever to say that on the idea of hoping that Haman's plan would be defeated but he did have every right to say it on the basis that he believed in the promises of God that a savior was going to be delivered through his people And so Mordecai was so convinced he was able to say but there is going to be salvation for his his people one way or another. We are not going to be wiped out. It might be carnage, Esther. It might be that there's just a few who survive but God will send a savior. Because that's what's at the core of this story. How is God going to make sure that a saviour is born in this world? He's going to make sure, and I think we can say this for our lives time and time again, he's going to make sure that a saviour is born by allowing things to get so bad That it can only be because he breaks in and delivers. How often has that happened in your life and in my life? Where it has got so bad that deliverance comes and we realize that can only be because God breaks in. It can only be because God's done that. That is one of the patterns that God enlists in his history in this world. (laughs) I will take you to the point where you are able to reflect and look back and see that I am the one who has saved you. I am the one who has made sure that Jesus will be born. And so we'll leave it there. We'll leave it with Esther with a decision. What is she going to do? Most of you will know because you've read it anyway. But how it unfolds is breathtaking. But more than that, we can praise the God who ensured that a Savior came into this world. And we can say with Mordecai, no matter what goes on, in this world today, In weeks, months, years to come, there is going to come a Savior. He is going to return. He is going to judge. He is going to put right all of the things that have been done so corruptly against him. Because he has already been once. It's great news.